Richard Howard, who works out of the AWS London office, has interviewed a number of angel investors about the mistakes first-time founders should avoid, why CEOs should be open to mentorship, and more. Hi, this is Richard Howard, Senior Business Development Manager at AWS. On the podcast today, I'm interviewing Johnny Bufferhat. He's the CEO of Hopin, a virtual events platform. I was really excited to interview Johnny because Hopin, as you can imagine, has grown incredibly quickly in the last nine months. In fact, they've grown from two employees to over 150 in just nine months. And we cover the story of the growth and everything from how to manage that growth, how to keep the culture of Hopin, and the early stage fundraising that he did to kind of build excitement even before COVID. So have a listen, and I really hope that you enjoy the episode. Why virtual events? Of all the, the things that you could have done, why did you focus on virtual events? It makes it a lot of sense now that we're in this kind of coronavirus period, but you started hopping you know, a couple of years ago. So, so why was that your focus? So I would say uh, the big focus for me was it came out of an autoimmune disease, really. I was stuck at home, kind of. I mean, looking back, it's exactly what I'm experiencing today. A lot of other people are kind of stuck at home. I couldn't work because I was so sick from autoimmune disease. But I still wanted to connect with people and network and attend events. And at the time, there was no real online solution, virtual event solution to kind of attend these events and perhaps even network with people. That was the goal, really networking. Because watching some content online, you can do that on YouTube. Whether it's live or not doesn't make a big difference. So online events are, have essentially been live content feeds you know, in the past. And I was looking for something that, how can I actually network with people you know, that are in the same industry, etc. while I'm stuck at home? And that's what led me to the virtual event space and building Hopin today. Okay, awesome. I would have thought there would be quite a competitive space. There are probably you know, a bunch of opportunities out there, but you were looking, you just couldn't find anything that was, that was good or was people just trying to you know, utilize Zoom and Skype for, for things like that? Exactly. So Zoom is great at like a 20-person call, uh, a 40-person perhaps. You know, after 20 people, it gets kind of hard. You can see that like 20 people on screen, nobody knows when to talk, et cetera, et cetera. So it's better for like a guided conversation or smaller meetings. Now, 20 plus people, there's not really much products out there that focus on 20 plus people and being allowed them to break out into small rooms or network or, you know, jump from area to area. So that's, that's where really where I got involved. And so I was looking kind of like through the history. Um, so I, I went quite, quite deep on your, on your Twitter archive. So it looks like, and tell me if I'm wrong, that you had a previous company called Readery. Yeah, that's right. And did that pivot into Hopin or was that a completely separate kind of company? So it was a completely separate company. So I had a, a during the time when I had the autoimmune diseases stuck at home, I, uh, before Hopin, at the very beginning, I was working on something called Readery. It was essentially, I was trying to make a, a blogging website. Again, it came out of my own personal need to, I wanted to keep my SEO, but I also wanted to get the traffic that Medium can get you when you post on Medium. Yeah. And so I was like, there's no real solution here. So it ended up being like a Google search for, for blog posts, which was not ideal. So um, yeah, it was not a great product. Uh, I mean, it was, it was pretty popular-ish, but it was not a great product in terms of monetization or anything like that. It wasn't great. Okay, so then kind of thinking about that as I guess... I don't know if you had entrepreneurial experience before that. Of you know, would you kind of kind of reiterate maybe your first failure, your first kind of experience? No. So I was lucky. So when I was um, in, you know, uh, so I had two. Well, one real startup before that, and 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 one uh, small community. So I had been I've been a 
coding since I was a kid. Uh, and so when I was 13, I, I created, uh, I don't know if you remember or if you were ever into a PHP BB forums. It was a way to basically create forums. And so I coded a forum was for WWF fans, anyone who's interested in WWF. And so it was quite popular back in the day. And then and, and when I went to university, and that was my first time like managing a community of sorts. I mean, those, those were the, the modern day Slack communities nowadays. Yeah. Uh, Evolve to or whatever else, but or Facebook groups. But the uh, now now we in in when I went to university, my first real startup was a company that basically was a mobile app that allowed students in my university to be able to connect with local restaurants to receive discounts as long as they were it was like a social uh, claim. So as long as they tweeted about it with it, it would it would verify it. It it was a good it was pretty cool. I mean, we had on both sides. It was like a marketplace. It was quite popular. And I ended up selling it for a little bit of money. And that is, uh, so let's call Readery the first failure. Let's call that the first success. And because my first startup that I did was like a mild success in my mind, I mean, for, to no modern venture capitalist would be excited about sort of money that it returned. But it was definitely in my mind as a student, a great success. And so I thought that making startups was easy and I could do it anytime I wanted. And so Readery was a quick lesson that, you know, timing and a lot of other things are, are very, very important. Yeah. So what was the moment when you realized that you were going to have to shut Readery down? And, you know, if you were talking to other entrepreneurs, which hopefully, you know, will be listening to this podcast, you know, obviously like it, it sucks, right? I've shut down a startup before. It is the worst thing I've ever went through, professionally speaking. You know, how, how did you kind of cope with it? And when did you realize you needed to do it? And then how did you kind of go through the process of doing it and then kind of coping with it? Well, uh, Readery for me was more of a, a side project than like a, a full blown. Like I was incredibly sick at the time. It was like something I just wanted to do for fun uh, instead of blogging. Like I wanted to blog, but I also wanted to own the platform where I could push through my blog. But I can tell you that a lot of times you work on something and you have no idea whether or not people are going to like it or not. I'm a big believer in uh, pushing out MVPs as quick as you can. And if you find traction in the market, then even if it's a mild amount of traction, then you could probably tell whether or not by that time you should be able, probably be able to tell how big or small this can get. But you know, the easiest w- way for me to know if you're if you, if you need to shut down your product is if you're trying to if you're focused on something that can be monetized or something that needs high user growth uh, in order to exist or to continue functioning. I think you need to look at whatever metrics you're getting either in monetization or in by you know, how viral is the growth. Because at some point, it needs either one of those, easily monetizable or you know, viral growth in terms of user growth. And if you're not getting either for a sustained period, you should probably shut it down. It makes sense. So my startup, we went, um, it was more so, it was a full-on startup. We went through Techstars. We raised just over half a million in seed money and 18 months in, we just weren't getting the traction that we wanted. And it was... Running it was was really hard, but shutting it down was like this thing that I dreamed of for years and years, such as life in the startup world. Okay, so hopping now, if anybody you know knows about it, they probably would have seen you know TechCrunch articles or business site articles on the, the huge amount of money that you raised. When when did you first start working on it? I had been working on it, but um, you know at the same time I was working on Readery. I, I was going through a phase because I was really really sick at the time. Genuinely, I couldn't leave my house, so I was kind of working on like a bunch of different projects at the same time, just to kind of pass time. It was one of those, I really wasn't thinking about it in a business sense at that time. And so I had created a hop in really about three years ago, I started working on it, but it was like, I would 
start working on it, stop working on it. It was really part of my recovery process. It wasn't until two years ago that I had uh, ran the first event because I, I was keen to show to get it into a Slack community that uh, was really popular. I wanted to see if you know if a Hopin event at the time or event hosted on Hopin would be amazing for them. And this was like pre-Corona, so totally like you know was online uh, events valuable. It was a remote community, so I was like, this is the perfect use case. If they don't enjoy it, then uh, you know, they're tech, they're like, so they're progressive and they don't mind trying all these new things. So I'm like, if it doesn't work here, then I should probably give up uh, or think about one or two other use cases and see if it fits in any of them. So I did it there and it was incredibly popular. And then there was an influencer event that happened about a month or two later that, you know, was also very monetizable. So it sold a lot of tickets and the person was like very, very keen to continue running it. So that was when I realized how you know I need to go full fledged and just push it as as quick as I can, and and at that time, luckily for me, was in a good point of my recovery. So I was ready, like I was getting geared up to go back and start, you know, and to build something. Okay, awesome. So you get a little bit of traction, a little bit of sign that this is something worth working on. What are your next steps? So the next steps for me, as I said, not common for everybody I know, but I had to fully recover. Sure. I was like, there's no way I can run a business if I'm very ill. So I, I had fully recovered. By the time I had fully recovered, I had started at least building out the platform. like Because really, it was more of a side project. Everything was kind of screwed together. And so now it was more about, let's refine it. Let's make sure that the actual organizer experience, not just the attendee experience, was good. So I started building it there. As soon as that had happened, I hired one person through the money that we had collected through the revenues and I decided whether or not to bootstrap or not or raise some money. Uh, instead, I decided to raise some money because I, uh, I saw the virals, how viral the product was. Essentially, you host one event, 100 people can come and maybe three to five of them would want to run their own event as well. So I was like, we probably need to be ahead of the curve in order to deal with the sort of demand that we can get and also move incredibly fast because uh, we'll, we'll have some copycats. So I raised some money with Seedcamp and then from there, it was just kind of just zooming we were incredibly fast i mean all of that became a blur because i think we we went in the last nine months from then we've grown from about two people to 150 and so it's just been a like it's actually blurry if i think about it so when you did your startup at university the one that you sold was that just you or did you have employees as well or is this the first time you got really employees so i was managing two to three people all part-time at the time and so it was like contract work essentially they would sell them things like part-time salespeople essentially yeah so this is the first time when you when you're kind of like a full-on ceo with teams and and team leads and all that kind of stuff exactly yeah how are you finding that it's a big learning curve as everything has been i think if i had to give one good piece of advice from what i've learned is that in a normal startup, if you're going fast, as a CEO or as the founder, it, most people are, are, let's say, it's their first, second, third. Like, you know, I doubt there's people that are on their 12th or 15th. Maybe there are. But for, if you're on your first or second, the rate that you're going to have to learn and be accepting of new things, the better you get at kind of forgetting what you've learned uh, in the past or some of the negative habits or, or habits that worked for you, for example... If you are not great at trusting others and delegating, like if you think everything you do is better, maybe I'm turning this into a more negative because I think everybody does it. So basically, like 
the more you see it as your baby, the company, and don't let others uh, really progress themselves or really start controlling it, the worse you're going to ha- harm the company in, a, in, in the long term. And I think like, the company can go only as fast as the founders. Yeah. And I think unless the founders are willing to learn and relearn and unlearn and then learn again uh, new things as the company progresses, you're not going to get further than where they got, essentially. Yeah. Like, uh, there was a huge difference between having a six-person team where I could directly manage each individual person and know exactly what everyone's working on to when we were a 20-person team where, oh, I actually have to delegate one part of it to someone else. And then to 150 where essentially I'm a cheerleader and, and vision setter and a few other things. And if you don't come to terms with each role quick enough, then I, th- I think you can slow down the growth of your company and also the strength. But at the same time, uh, I got some really good advice from another CEO who's, who's a, who the four or five times CEO saying that the best people you can hire and the best founders are people that can go really, really deep. So go right to the bottom and work on a basic, basic problem, whether it's a UI problem or finance, like something really deep in one area, and then immediately go right back up to long-term strategy in the same discussion. And um, that's something that uh, has been really interesting for me. Okay, yeah, because you must have grown. I mean, you have, I guess, grown much faster than you expected. When you, because you, the seed round, which is ludicrous to call it that, was like six and a half million dollars, right? Yeah. You know, this is pre-coronavirus. That that's gonna, you know, our our burn rate is X. That's gonna last us, you know, eighteen months to two years. We're gonna have, you know, whatever the prediction was, forty employees by then. I'm gonna grow fast and I'm gonna learn fast. But coronavirus hits, and that that must have accelerated, you know, five, ten X because. How many months was it later that you raised the A round? Three months, four months. Yeah. So I think you go, oh shit, I'm I was on a rocket ship. Then my rocket ship has some like very special fuel mm-hmm. and the learning curve has just gone up and up. So as you've gone from two people to 150 people now, how have you managed to kind of maintain, you know, the hop in culture? Whew. So one thing that I, I feel like I always think about where do I actually have insight that could be valuable and and what is the rest that you're better off hearing from someone else. So I can tell you, yes, we're probably the fastest company to go from zero to 150 people. So there's some insight that I have there. And also we did it remotely. And I can tell one thing valuable from doing it remotely is that I don't think it would have been possible to keep the culture decent uh, or keep the culture to where we want it to be, which I think it's great on the team and at the moment, but we wouldn't have been able to do it if we weren't remote. Adding someone and onboarding someone and making them effective remotely is a thousand times easier than doing it in person, in my opinion. Uh, the reason why is because, uh, well, okay, and, and hiring. Okay, so if you think about hiring someone in, in London, so you have a notice period, usually one to three months, they have to you think about the office. You know, where is your office? If it's too far away from their homes, that's a problem. Tons of different little things that you don't think about. You have to think about, oh, where, which space do I put them in? There's a hundred different things that pop up. Whereas remotely, it's just like most of the time you can find people that either have a notice period or don't have a notice period for hiring the same person in London. But there's many countries in the world where they don't have these notice periods or someone can join in two weeks. Yeah. Or, or there's just a lot more available talent. And so the notice period kind of gets wiped off a little bit. So when we're expanding, that was so helpful because we were like, when we were eight people, we needed to be 30. So like we had to hire in one week, we hired 10 people when we were eight. And it was insane, but uh, we needed to do it. And so getting them on board, it is like, hey, here's this Notion doc, read these docs and then join our Slack. And then here's your, like if it's an engineer, here's your, here's a GitHub, read this. And 
like within two days, they could be properly onboarded because people are doing it in their own time, two video calls later and, and they're there. It's a lot more efficient. So I think if you're hyperscaling, remote is great. Up to, and this is just my concern, uh, up to 200 people. I think now we're facing how do we maintain the culture. When you're 150 plus people and now people aren't doing video meetings as often, when you're eight people, you're kind of always on video and kind of like discussing things and kind of get to know each other. Now, when there's so many people you don't know, remote is different because in an office, you can can look at the walls and you can see maybe there's some writing like, you know, you know, never, never give up type thing. And so you kind of yeah, feel yeah. the culture of the, of the company and you can see what people are eating, like everything, everything, the, the food that, that, that arrives by the cafeteria, like makes a difference on what you think of the company. Is it, is it burgers or is it like really healthy salads? Is there a yoga person that comes in twice a week? You know, and so you have no idea. Whereas online, it's kind of that you have to do it by Slack. So I don't know how, um, but GitLab has done it in an amazing way. But keeping a culture above 200 people remote is going to be something interesting for us to learn. Sure. And then, so you've gone from, you know, two to 150 people incredibly fast. Is there a higher, you know, a specific kind of role that is so important, but maybe you didn't realize how important it was going to be back when you were a couple of people? Oh, that's such a, that's such a great question. I've never thought about that, to be honest, but I, I can tell you that across the board, there has probably been key hires. So I was at a time doing most of the engineering work, uh, like as an engineering manager. Of course. If I look about it, hiring our first engineering manager to take that was an incredibly important hire. You know, you can't continue functioning as a product if you're not advancing your features, etc. And so that was an important one. I think at different at different scales of the company, it matters more and more. Yeah. Uh, but I, I can tell you, ne- oh, in ever no, uh, that's a really tough question. I think let's call it between phases. I think everybody's going to say from zero to twenty. I think like. Whoever you have that's leading engineering is, or zero to 10, it's, that's the most important, or, or product and engineering. And from like 10 to 30, that's probably when, when you want to get your first sales. So probably it's the salesperson, although the founders should be doing a lot of sales at that time as well. But it's, it's someone who can sell the product. So you built the product, now you need to sell the product. And so hiring someone that can sell the product effectively and start building up those playbooks. From 50 to 100, it starts to get organization becomes very important. So hiring someone in an operating role was incredibly important for us to start like making sure everything kind of is starting to become automated because you can't manage everybody directly. And then from 100 uh, to 150, it's still been in that like operation zone. And now I think uh, HR has become really important, uh, you know, for us because a good HR person can make a huge difference. Yeah, no, for sure. That's that. So the HR was the one that I've heard. So I, unfortunately, my company, we got to, I think we were like eight people. And I've worked at other ones, bigger ones, but the ones that I've I've heard CEOs talk about that is um, undervalued before you get them is like the HR person, right? Yeah. Because that is the person that makes sure that A, that you're onboarding, that you're hiring the right way, that you're kind of maintaining that culture. And also if there are, pro- and, 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 you know, employees want to know that the work they're doing is valued. So when you're in a you know small scrappy startup and everybody's in the same room, you don't think about kind of review processes and, and things like that. But once you get to 150 people and you have managers and managers, managers and line managers and, and teams, you know, people, normal employees, they want to say, you know, I want a six month review or an annual review. And what's that process? And how does that go? And, you know, do I get a promotion? And do I get a pay rise and all that stuff? And, and having somebody in HR, I've heard, of course, not build a company that big, but that that is incredibly important. Yeah, no, no, it, it's been, it's incredibly important. I mean, exactly what you said, reviews and all that stuff that you don't think about when you're kind of like smaller. Yeah. So I want to go back um, a little bit because you mentioned there, can you know, founders should be doing the sales and, and I'm, I'm somebody who 100% believes in founder-led sales. 
So those first sales that you did back when you were you know, building MVP, were you, was it you that kind of, I think it was uh, Slack groups and things like that. Was it you that, you know, made those phone calls or, or did those emails and, and did those first sales? Yes, definitely. So it was myself and Dave from our team. We were, you know, he was uh, the first business hire. Both of us were just nonstop, pretty much. I, like I had a sales job for that month, I remember. We're lucky there was a lot of traction in sales. And also, we, we had a lot of people just landing on the website. So it wasn't, we still haven't done any outbound sales. Everything has been inbound. So okay. we're lucky in that sense. Okay. So it's, I guess it's more kind of like a, a funnel management rather than exactly. outbound, like cold calling, cold emailing. That's right. Okay. So I, I watched a, like a video podcast you did. And at that time, I think it was recorded in April, said you had a wait list of 180,000. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where does that start? Do you still have a wait list or is it kind of completely open? So we changed it because the wait list was, uh, we, so we got rid of the wait list, but we kind of have that like get early access. The problem was with that wait list is when we're going so fast, it's like a lot of them were attendees, uh, people just like wanting to get like on a wait list for anything, almost like an email app where it's like, we were, yeah. we're really looking for organizers. So we trimmed that. Uh, I remember like a month after that podcast to figure out, hey, who are who exactly like are real companies here or communities or organizers that really want to actually host events? Like we added a question that's like, you know, are you planning to host events or do you want to attend events? And before it was like most people were like, it was I think it was sixty percent of them were saying, do you want? I'm looking to attend an event. It's like, oh, well, then this is not the right wait list, I guess, for us. Yeah. So we uh, we switched it. So it was went to twenty thousand once we figured out like how many people are actually real in there. And now it's uh, now it's at like it was at fifty five thousand when we removed it. I think like a month ago, removed the early access. Okay. And then so I had uh, Rahul Vora, the the CEO of of Superhuman, and they did like an in person or, or remote like onboarding for everybody that kind of signs up to Superhuman. Are you doing a similar thing for for Hopin? And is that why the the waitlist is is still so large? Superhuman does the I mean, gotta say, best onboarding I've ever. I mean, I use Superhuman; it's the best onboarding I've ever seen. So why our waitlist got so large is because we didn't have enough people to get to them. That's okay. the real reason. It just there was too much demand due to coronavirus, and also the virality of the events that we we just built up and we didn't properly funnel uh, manage it. And now we are, now we are. Now our marketing team is really starting to manage uh, how people get on board, etc. We still don't have proper onboarding really in Hopin. You know, we've only been around as a company for nine months. It's, it seems pretty crazy. Or like as a you know, more than just me on the team. Essentially, that was like nine months yeah. ago. So we, there's a ton of things that we didn't we didn't have a chance to even look at. Yeah. So kind of talking around the the growth during coronavirus. So you talked about kind of managing the waitlist. How are you managing things like um, product releases and you know, managing the energy time, all all the other things where you thought you were going to grow at you know a high rate, but now it's kind of like a supercharged rate. So product releases have been tricky, especially with events. If your email app like Superhuman went down, you know, for an hour, I'm sure it's terrible. Like I'm not, I'm not uh, undermining the value that they bring because I would be annoyed. But I would, I'll also be able to go to my Gmail and quickly just answer the email. Yeah. The problem with Hopin is if we do a product release and it breaks someone's event in the middle of their event when they have potentially a thousand people watching, you know, it's a serious, serious problem. So we've had problems with this. We decided to do bi-weekly product release. And then we said, that's incredibly Neolithic. It's old. <laughs> it's, um, you know, it's, uh, it's old and, and not a great way to do things. So now we're like, okay, we, we brought it down to one week. And now we're saying, how do we make it continuous? 
but also just improve the test processes and uh, you know the continuous deployment so that we can just like it's safe enough that we can trust our own uh, continuous release cycle. Okay. Have there been any? I mean, I'm sure like every event that is that is run on Hopin is like got a piece of your heart. But is there any event that was going to be run that you know you saw that kind of coming up and you're like, we cannot mess up this. It cannot like the platform cannot go down during this particular event. Maybe it was someone famous that was talking. Maybe there was one where just a load of int- attendees. Yeah. So there's a ton. I mean, the UN Global Compact event. Okay. The United Nations when they hosted their event, it was unbelievably stressful because. You know, uh, well, I, we, I wasn't stressed. Nobody was really stressed, stressed about it. But we were just like, you know, you kind of just have that thought in the back of your mind that's like, if something were to happen during this event, this would be the worst possible time. Yeah. Uh, we've had multiple events since then. And that was like in the early days of Hopin, uh, early days, like three months ago. Four <laughs> and so we, now we're a lot more stable uh, in terms of like, we were always stable, but now we are, we're like, you know, we've done... We've invested in penetration testing. We've invested in a lot of different things to start. Yeah. Really looking like, things. but we had to do this. I can't tell you, like these oh, last 10 months have been insane. I mean, we, we've skipped so many steps or done so many things that like our motto right now in the company is, if you think that we need to do this in six months or in a year, do it now. That's like literally the motto that we, we've set up. Yeah. So one of the questions that I want to go back to um because well, we were talking about culture. And I remember from um, the Masters of Scale podcast that, that Reid Hoffman does, you interviewed Brian Chesky, CEO of Airbnb. And uh, Brian was saying that he was like the final interview for like the first 500 employees of the company until he became this you know massive bottleneck. Are you still interviewing um, or part of the interview process for the majority of employees or all employees? Or have you kind of delegated that down now? So I was uh, up to 100. Okay. And then it ended up because you can't take a half an hour to an hour out of the day. So now it's like anyone coming into a leadership position across Hopin, I will do a interview because I don't want to block. Essentially, my calendar is busy enough that now if let's say someone was, if we had like 30 people coming in and they all needed an interview in the week and we kind of really need them, then like yeah. I don't want to delay the process of hiring. So sure. with any individual contributors, usually... We, uh, you know, they are hired, uh, and want maybe the leadership in their in their teams will definitely interview them, and I will do an onboarding call, like 10, 15 minutes, just like hey, get to know get to know the person, and you know, sell the mission, etc. But in the in, in in all leadership positions, I I interview. Okay, yeah, awesome. I had my notes first time CEO, but you're not a first time CEO. But this is still, you know, incredible growth. First real. Okay, first, first, you still you sold a company. I mean, I would take that as a win as a CEO. Like, do you have any mentors that you rely on to kind of like guide you through the different kind of things that you need to do as a CEO? So I never had one really, and I haven't had one. But I mean, recently, the benefit nowadays is that people, uh, founders, are really helpful with each other. Especially like if you reach out and they don't think you're just directly trying to sell to them. If it's yeah. uh, more of a just like need support, etc. People are super duper helpful to jump on a call, give you advice. I received some amazing advice from Alex from Giphy. It was one advice that I got, like a random call that I got introed. And, you know, he spent like an hour and a half with me at 3 a.m. talking about positive things. And I've noticed that a lot of founders are like that and will give you their time uh, because, you know, it's uh, someone would have given them a break in, in a way. Yeah. So, you know, I, I think that there's a ton of founders that are open and et cetera. And so, based on wherever you are in your company, 
I think, um, you know, asking if you do, if you have raised money, your VC will be able to connect you. Or if you haven't, like it is difficult. Like nobody would have answered my email to spend like half an hour giving me mentorship or advice when I was like at Readery, for example, because it just wasn't doing well enough. And so people need to balance their time and et cetera. Maybe if I sent an email, just like, hey, one line answer, this is my situation, what should I do? (laughs) Or something like that, perhaps someone would answer. But um, at the very beginning as well, there's tons of books out there. But I I would also say that uh, one thing I, I mean, The Lean Startup is a book I read and then I quickly unlearned it because you, you can't direct a lot of the advice you're going to get is so contextual and the mentorship you're going to get is so contextual that it will make sense. If I got advice from a CEO of, of, you know, let's say a big bank or even a big tech company that was just like a bit old school, then like Hopin, you know, I would never been able to do what we've done with Hopin. And who knows if it's going to be a huge, huge, huge success. I think so. But, uh, you know, we, we moved incredibly fast. And so most of the advice I would have got on that would have been, you know, that it's today, it's like very very difficult or dangerous to move at that sort of pace. But now, how many remote CEOs do you know? So I'm sure if I asked someone in the remote world, is it possible to hire this many people? They would have probably said yes. And yeah. so I think it's so contextual. That makes a lot of sense. So I, I want to go back a little bit to kind of the, the, the first money that you raised, because that is a lot of questions that you know early stage founders have, which is about you know kind of raising money. So I guess if you got emails from those early stage founders that we were just talking about, it would be like, how did you raise money? So forget the 40 million because it was coronavirus. You guys were doing something that was virtual. There's a lot of events. It's a big market. It makes sense that there was kind of a clamor for, for, for you guys. You already had traction. How did you get in touch with Seedcap? Did you know somebody there? Was it a cold email? VCs are very much like, a, they're all warm intros, like almost 95%. Yeah. You're going to meet a few. I mean, your best bet is going to an angel. So angels are a little bit more open to answer, like if you send a, a pitch deck or et cetera. But even them, they work through warm intros, but they're more likely at least to open it. And so in my experience, I met an investor at an event. That investor at an event opened the door because I now emailed other investors saying, hey, I'm like, because that investor, I met him at an event, not a big time investor, like could only invest about 20,000. He will be now. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Uh, he, but he, would, he could only invest 20,000. That kind of put it on the like, map because I asked him, not on the map, but like on the early stage VC, because I asked him, like, can you intro me anywhere? And he was like, yeah. And so I started meeting all the other VCs in that network. But also uh, an angel that I had met on the other side. So let's say, because there was two that I was doing at the same time. There was an angel that I met via intro. So I had done a cold reach out on an email to an, another angel investor. He said he wasn't interested in this, but one of his friends maybe. So he sent it to one of his friends. So like, if you go straight to Seedcamp, there's no guarantee. I mean, Seedcamp's early stage, so they may answer. But you know, the earlier you get, because the angels know that their job is to find startups, like especially early stage angel investors. Like They don't want to invest much and they want to like really know what they're investing in. So they like read everything and that's their job, especially like professional angels. So I would find an angel investor, someone who uh, is like their job is to angel invest. Like that's their main, the main thing they do. Maybe they were have a, like it's a part-time thing for them, but they're focused on it at an early stage. Very like someone that's looking for early stage, it says you can email them because they're the most likely to answer. And also if they're not going to invest, they may likely send you on to someone else because everybody owes each other. Like, no, oh, I sent you this, you sent me that. Yeah. yeah. No, and it's, so I've, 
in the last like 18 months, I've started to do some angel investing. I've been part of the startup world since 2012. And only in the last 18 months, you know, using the incredible rise in the Amazon share price, um, have I been able to, you know, liquidate some some cash and invest in startups. And I'd put it on my LinkedIn, you know, AWS startups, an angel investor. And the number of like LinkedIn like uh, requests you get is, is like through the roof. And what I would say on that is like the number of bad kind of requests you get is just unbelievable. So if you are going to kind of reach out cold to an angel investor, if you don't know anybody in, the, in, in that world, um, either you know go to events you know in person or or, or online through through Hopin, um, like you did, or if you're going to reach out to them cold via email or via um, via LinkedIn, uh, you know don't have like a big long thing, have like a couple of things. You know, this is what we're building. This is where we are, and you're and, you know here's a link to our deck, or you know this is how much we're looking for. But like the number of times you get people who are like you know entrepreneur and they don't say anything in the introduction. And I, I would just, like, I don't know you, so I'm, I'm, you've not obviously got anything that's interesting to kind of introduce yourself, so I'm not going to say yes. Or they have like a really long spiel, you're like, this is just a lot of stuff, and it doesn't tell me how you guys are doing as a company. Mm. If you're doing really well, or you're doing something really interesting, you should have like something there. But yeah, so then you get the angel investors, then you go to, to seed camp. And so once seed camp had said yes, is that one kind of like the other best? Because was, was Axel in the, in the seed round? No, Axel, right? no. So seed camp was a pre seed, and Axel was the seed round. I suppose it was a seed round. Okay. Yeah. And then once you have seed camp, seed camp have the most unbelievable network in all of Europe, right? Exactly. So seed camp has the network. But again, the most helpful in reaching out to investors for our seed round was actually other investors. So founders, like when I joined seed camp, I was like to Carlos and Reshma, I was like, hey, introduce me to new investors. And they were like, well, we can tell them about you. But if we introduce you, it's so obvious uh, that it's just like it's not as good for you. So let the best way to do it is you find an intro to them somehow through your founder networks, founder intros, or other angel intros are the best intros. And then when they call us to ask about you, we'll say positive things. That's the best way to do it. Seedcamp's network is great, but they don't use it too often. Yeah. So one one thing I would say for anybody that's listening to this is AWS also has an incredible network. Our job is to work with the accelerators, incubators, and the VCs. We have two people in the UK whose sole job is to work with VCs. So if you are doing something interesting and you know, seed capital goes go down the route, then we can potentially help with those introductions. Like that is not an open invitation to everybody saying, hey, introduce me to a VC. But you know, if you have like a pre-seed investor like a seed camp and they're saying, hey, go you know, find find another route, and we can tell them how amazing you are when they come and ask us. AWS has a relationship with all with all the VCs. Mm-hmm. Um, so during this uh, coronavirus horrible lockdown period, everybody's given recommendations of books and video and, and Netflix and, and, and whatnot to watch. Uh, I would like your anti-recommendations, things that you have read or watched or, or seen that people should avoid because it's a waste of time or not good enough. Oh, man. So I don't watch too many Netflix series or anything. And I, I very rarely read books because uh, I, I want to get to the core of them very quickly. So I, I use that app now. I'm firm the name. But uh, you know, the app that kind of summarizes. Yeah. So I'm the wrong example, but a waste of time. I could imagine watching YouTube food videos uh, on how to make uh, on, on, on people. Like, that's something I, I splurge on every once in a while is watching, uh, watching you know, top 10 burgers in London <laughs> and just watching the videos of burgers that I used to eat. That is, uh, <laughs> that is, uh, that, that's a waste of time. So that's my anti recommendation. Okay, fair enough. Is it Blinkist, the app that kind of summarizes everything in the... Yes, yes. Okay, yes. awesome. And then uh, the final question. So hopefully like this has been like an engaging, interesting conversation. Who else would you like to hear on a podcast like this? Oh, 
Yeah, especially considering the, the great questions you asked. There's a ton. I it'll be difficult, but I'd love to get Daniel Dines on a call like this. You know, I think he was the fastest, they were the fastest growing company in the world. Uh, UiPath mm-hmm. that would be super interesting. Uh, but another founder that is we has more uh, would would be more open to it would be yeah I think Graphy yeah. Graphy app. I think they're doing something unbelievable, like really really cool application. Uh, graphyapp.com but I, I and I think it's like Paul it's going to be really 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 super so I, uh, Andre from Graphyapp is, would be a great person put that in my notes and I will reach out to Andre awesome that's great awesome Johnny thank you so much for, for joining me on the AWS Startup Podcast um, and for anybody that wants to check you out uh, so it's hopin.2 is the, is the website that's correct and what is your kind of Twitter or you know tech talk handle if you've got that my handle is at Johnny Bufferhat so it's just my first name at Johnny Buffat. I can't imagine there was much competition for that on, on Twitter. No, I, <laughs> I, I I don't know if I was supposed to regret. I, was that, is that how Twitter works? Am I supposed to put my full name? You I put whatever you want, that. really. And, and then uh, Hopin Official is our Twitter. Hopin Official. And, awesome. Johnny, thank you so much. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Richard. If you are looking to get started on the cloud with AWS, our Activate program provides startups with a host of benefits, including AWS credits, technical support, training, and other resources to help grow your business. Head to aws.amazon.com backslash activate for more. Do us a favor and leave us a review. And if you know someone who we should have on the show, or maybe it's you, reach out to us at startupstories at amazon.com. And subscribe to AWS Startup Stories wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.